Turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 5. So we continue working our way through this gospel. Luke chapter 5. <clears throat> Sometimes uh, people, even Christians, have strange ideas about Jesus' life. People sometimes assume Jesus was just roving about the countryside looking for sick people to heal, kind of doing a miracle here and a miracle there with no apparent purpose, as if he, one of those, as if he were one of those eccentric millionaires that sometimes we hear stories about at Christmas time, who just going around passing out money to people just because they can. But Jesus didn't just come to dole out blessings to us. Jesus came to lay claim to the world as God's Messiah, to inaugurate God's promised kingdom, to redeem God's chosen ones. And his miracles were signs by which he validated his claims that people might understand, believe, follow him. In our text today, we see Jesus carefully, intentionally revealing himself and making his claims clear. Let's read it. Luke chapter 5, verse 17 down through 26, the account of the healing of the paralytic. One day as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem were sitting there. And the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Some men came, carrying a paralytic on a mat, and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. And everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. The three things that I think are worthy of uh, focusing on today, three important truths that I think we ought to learn from this passage though we never exhaust everything a passage has to say, but here's three good things. The first is this. True faith won't give up. True faith won't give up. The book, The Little Engine That Could, has been a favorite children's story for almost 100 years now. I'm sure you know the famous line, whether you've read the story for decades I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. You know that story? We love that story, for it teaches children willingness to serve even when others won't, and dogged perseverance even against seemingly insurmountable odds. 
Well, here in this text before us, we have a story which is actually true that teaches all those things and more. For here we're taught the nature of true faith, faith that the Lord delights in, true faith that won't just give up. We see that authentic faith displayed by the friends of this paralyzed man. We aren't told a lot of details, but we're told enough to understand what happened. This group of friends heard that Jesus was in town, this Jesus who they knew could heal people. So they gathered up their friend on a stretcher and headed off to see Jesus. But when they arrived, they couldn't get in the door. We can only imagine their attempts, trying in vain to push their way through the crowd, perhaps trying to convince people of the urgency of their mission. But filling the room that day were lots of important people, Pharisees and teachers of the law, not only from the surrounding villages, but from as far away as Judea and Jerusalem. Obviously, these men with their paralyzed friends are not going to get in. They might as well go home and try another day. No, but not so fast. True faith doesn't just give up. So one of them hatched a plan. We don't know who or we don't know how it all came about, but up the stairs to the flat roof of that house they went, and they began to dig down through the roofing material to find the tiles that uh, made up the, the, the base of the roof. And carefully they began to remove those tiles, lots of them, enough to make room for an adult-sized stretcher. One can only imagine what was happening down below as Jesus was teaching and debris were, was falling from the, uh, the, 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 the ceiling. But, but even if people were objecting, it didn't matter to these men. They had a paralyzed friend. And in that room was a man named Jesus who could make him walk again. Their faith could not, would not be a turned away. They would not give up. I can imagine how some Christians I know would have responded to this situation. Well, you know, we thought we were going to bring Jesus, uh, bring our friend to Jesus. We thought maybe he could help him, but uh, well, we just weren't able to get in. I guess it's just not God's will for him to deal with him today. Wait a minute. Where do we ever get the idea that God's will is going to be the path of least resistance? Why would we think that God, God's will is whatever's the easiest these men were like the Syrophoenician woman that Matthew tells us about in his gospel. Though Jesus basically implied that she was a Gentile dog, she, she only responded, well, even the dogs eat the crumbs from the children's table. In other words, her faith was desperate. She would not be turned away. And Jesus delights in that kind of faith. The just won't quit. So I would ask you this morning, how desperate is your faith? How badly do you need Jesus in your life? Is he more important to you than life itself? Or could you get along just as well without him if you had to? Is he absolutely your only hope? Or if it doesn't work out with him, do you have some other options in mind? I tell you, if you think you have other sources of hope, other options for your soul then you may be curious, you may be checking Jesus out to see what's in it for you, but what you have is not true faith. For true faith won't quit. It cannot, for it has nowhere else to go. That's the first lesson we learn here. But then as we continue this account, we learn a second truth. 
Even the forgiven wait for healing. Even the forgiven wait for healing. Picking up the story again, after considerable effort, these four men got their friends uh, lowered down into the room where Jesus was. Finally, he will get the help that he needs, and Jesus will make him walk. But when Jesus saw the man, he did what no one expected. He didn't touch him. He didn't say some magic words. He didn't even pray for him or try to heal him from his paralysis. Instead, Jesus simply said, friend, your sins are forgiven. That raises an important question for us to consider. What's, this, what's the connection between sin and sickness, between forgiveness and healing? Over the years, many have treated the two as inseparable. For we know that sickness comes upon us because of man's fall into sin. So the ultimate cause of all sickness and suffering and death is sin. Indeed, when Jesus forgives and heals, he is demonstrating his power over the root cause of all sickness, which is sin, the fall of, of humanity. And when will sickness be removed? Well, when the curse of sin is removed from the earth. Then there will be no more sorrow, no crying, no pain. So it's easy to just ignore any distinction between sin and the presence of sickness. In fact, that's what the disciples themselves often did. When they saw a man born blind, as it's recorded in John chapter 9, they immediately asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They just assumed his sickness reflected somebody's sin. Job's friends did the same thing. They saw his suffering and very confidently they concluded, well, the problem, Job, is your sin. You're getting what you deserve from God. That's how God works. He punishes sin with sickness and suffering. Oh, but more often, even the forgiven must wait for healing. We see this in Jesus dealing with this paralyzed man. Jesus forgave the man his sin. Friend, your sins are forgiven. And what happened to his paralysis? Nothing. There he lay, still unable to move. And this is not the only example of people who were forgiven, but continue to suffer and wait to be healed. Paul suffered terribly from what he called his thorn in the flesh. Though he clearly was forgiven and teaches us about forgiveness. And he pleaded with God to remove that trouble, but God did not. left him dealing with what many think was really bad eyesight. Paul's traveling companion Trophimus, fellow minister of the gospel, one who probably was with Paul as he healed people in Jesus' name, yet Paul tells us he had to leave him behind in Miletus because he was sick. Minister of the gospel, traveling with Paul, doing God's word, can't continue, he's sick. Indeed, this very morning, many of God's great saints, faithful Christian disciples who live today in the joy of God's forgiveness are sick and in trouble and will die still waiting for relief. You see, though we are forgiven, we often must wait for healing. Now, folks, this is an important distinction. 
which we must understand in this age in which we live. Though God forgives our sins completely because of Jesus' work of redemption, we do not yet enjoy freedom from all the effects of man's fall into sin. Christians still get sick. Indeed, until the Lord comes, every one of us, every one of us will die of something. So Jesus' two-staged restoration of this man, where he was forgiven but not yet healed, was a foretaste of this whole age in which we live, in which we are truly forgiven in Christ, but still suffer the ravages of sickness and disease and suffering. And failure to understand that distinction brings disastrous results. If you let someone tell you that because you are sick or because you suffer, you're obviously living in sin, you, you, you obviously don't have enough faith, or you need to get right with God. If you start to think that way, you may eventually completely lose your faith, believing that if God does not heal me, he must not have forgiven me. Believing that if he does not heal me, he must not care about me. He must not be trustworthy. He must not keep his promises. He must not love us after all. Or as some have done, we may make a circus out of the faith, trying to make healing happen and wound the souls of the faithful in the process. Well, there's a, it's certainly a profound connection between sin and sickness, between forgiveness and healing. But dear friends, they're not just the same thing. Even the forgiven must wait for healing. Some years ago, I read the autobiography of the life of Johnny Erickson, that quadriplegic artist and writer. This godly woman who knows more about suffering than anyone I know recounted the pain brought into her life by people telling her that because the Bible says by his wounds you are healed, that healing is guaranteed right now to those who believe, just like forgiveness is. So those who are not healed are guilty of a lack of faith. Folks, that's a cruel lie. If it were true, it would mean that every person who dies by dying demonstrates he had no faith. Because if he had believed, God would have healed him. That's absurd. Or well, certainly true that by Jesus' wounds we are healed, but we do not have it all yet. Today, even the forgiven must wait for healing. That's the second point. Finally, we get to the most important truth of the story, our third point. Jesus has God's authority to heal and forgive. Jesus has God's authority to heal and forgive. It's interesting to watch the ongoing political campaigns. But the most difficult thing about it, I think, is trying to figure out what claims the candidates are actually making. Oh, the speeches sound inspiring, but the details are rather hard to pin down, aren't they? I don't mean the candidates are lying. They're just politicians. They're experts in generalities. 
They're experts in evading those sticky situations in which they would have to commit themselves to a specific position. That's what politicians do. Uh, But folks, Jesus does just the opposite. In this account, he seems to actually set up this situation. Here in the presence of all these Pharisees and teachers of the law, he goes out of his way to make his claims as clear as possible. And his claim is simple. That Jesus has God's authority to both heal and forgive. Back to the details of the story. The paralytic's friends lower him down into the room, right in the middle of this crowd, right in front of Jesus. As he had done so many times before, Jesus could have said, friend, be healed. And the man would have walked out, restored to health, and everyone would have been amazed and astonished and praised God for the healing. But instead, Jesus said, friend, your sins are forgiven. And that set up an in-your-face encounter with these Jewish leaders. You know, sometimes we villainize the scribes and Pharisees, the teachers of the law, but these were smart men. And they knew their Bible better than any of us. So a claim to forgive someone's sins was not just going to pass unnoticed with these men. Their mental wheels began to turn. Their theological arguments began to to work their way through all of this. And they began to think, who does this guy think he is? No one has the authority to tell someone their sins are forgiven, but God alone. This... Jesus is claiming for himself the unique prerogatives that only belong to God. That's not cute. That's not funny. That's not just empty talk. If defiling God's name is blasphemy, then this claim to possess God's own authority to forgive sins, that's the most heinous blasphemy. And now Jesus has him right where he wants him. Now he's in a position to set forth and substantiate his claim. So Jesus says, well, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? That's quite a revealing question. But Jesus' point is simple. It's really pretty easy to say your sins are forgiven. I can tell you, your sins are forgiven. Any cult leader can tell you, your sins are forgiven. Any quack can say, your sins are forgiven. Because that claim cannot be proven. It cannot be empirically verified. As they sat and looked at the paralyzed man lying on the stretcher, they had no way to know whether his sins were forgiven or not. Well, but then Jesus sets forth his claim. In verse 24. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, take your mat, get up, take your mat, and go home. And immediately the man did exactly what Jesus said. Healed of his paralysis, he went home praising God all the way. Do you understand what Jesus did here? He made a claim which people could observe to be true or false. The claim to heal the paralyzed man. Either the man got up or he couldn't get up. 
You could see whether the claim was true. But he made that claim in such a way that it proved the claim people could not observe. His claim to forgive the man's sins. Jesus didn't beat around the bush. He didn't suggest possible interpretations to his words. He didn't hint at something or make some oblique allusion to some possible claim. Jesus claimed God's authority to both heal and to forgive. You know, we live in a day of God talk. Our culture is quite secular. People talk a lot about God. But exactly what God are they talking about? What are his undeniable claims? Too often such concrete definition is completely avoided. God is some kind of nebulous spirit of everything, some spirit of unity or spirit of love. But what about Jesus? What about the Trinity? What about sin? What about judgment? How might, be one, might one be forgiven? Does one even need to be forgiven? Well, these unbending subjects are not so popular in the God talk of our day. But you see, Jesus is not like that. Jesus makes his claims crystal clear and then reinforces them with verifiable evidence. And those claims bring about a great division. Either we believe him or we can't stand him. We find him arrogant and boastful and self-centered. And that day was the beginning of this great division in the life of Jesus Though everyone had seen the same miracle and heard the same claims, the scribes and the Pharisees began to set themselves against Jesus, for he did not fit their expectations of God's Messiah. But the people who knew how desperate their need was believed and followed him. For Jesus has authority to both heal and forgive. And folks, the things Jesus did and said we're for our benefit too. Today he calls us to follow. Today he offers us forgiveness. Not just verified by his ability to make a paralytic walk so many years ago, but verified by his resurrection from the dead, having paid for our sins on the cross. Today, Jesus has the authority to forgive you. Over the years, we've learned that the things which appear to be easy may often be the most difficult. The things which appear so simple may may actually be quite complex. And things which look rather plain may be highly nuanced with delicate shades of meaning. That's, That's what makes life beautiful. Gives it depth and makes it interesting. Well, I would suggest that this healing of the paralyzed man is such a story. On the surface, it's another of Jesus' healings with the little twist of the man being let down through the ceiling. But as we ponder it, we can detect profound themes here. The nature of true faith. What does true faith look like? Looks like those friends. It won't quit. It will not give up. And then what's the relationship between sin and sickness? 
Obviously, they're connected. How closely? Well, even the forgiven must wait to be healed. And then there's the profound claims of Jesus, which are breathtaking if we just think about it a minute. Jesus claims God's authority to both heal and forgive. Great themes, profound things. In the simplest of stories, loved by children. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, as we reflect on this event so many years ago and how you've recorded it for us through the apostles, help us not to miss the point. Help us to not deal with it at a superficial level, but to ponder, Lord, what it tells us about faith and what it tells us about your healing and your forgiveness and where we are in your plan right now and most of all what it tells us about our Savior. Lord, draw us to yourself as we reflect on your word. Maybe not just shrug it off and walk out of here, but may we chew on it and meditate on it and allow it to change our perspective. Oh Lord, we need your spirit to do that in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.